high school graduation in Wabash, Indiana on a June day in 1895. The graduates were a mix of native peoples from tribes all over America. The school's philosophy was simple. Kill the Indian and save the man. A 19-year-old named Gertrude, a Yankton Sioux, had endured this philosophy since she had started at the school at eight years old. Now, braids cut, reading and writing in English, she stood up to speak. Half of humanity cannot rise while the other half is in subjugation. Gertrude came from a matriarchal society where women kept the land and held power. She had been educated in a patriarchal society where men held absolute power. When women are kept down, men must necessarily occupy the same level. Her graduation speech was a call for voting rights. The Wabash Times said it was a masterpiece that has never been surpassed in eloquence or literary perfection by any girl in this country. A woman in the audience offered to pay for Gertrude to go to college. Gertrude soon took the Lakota name Zitkala Shah, Red Bird. Her voice for the rights of American Indians would echo across the country. This is Zion's Suffragists, a podcast from the Deseret News about voting rights for women in Utah. Today, we meet two women who fought for civil rights for their communities well into the 20th century and fought like their lives depended on it. When wagon trains of white Americans began settling in Utah, they considered the people already living there as foreigners, the Paiute, Ute, Shoshone, Goshute, Navajo. U.S. law said that if an individual should leave his nation or tribe and take up his abode among the white population, he would be entitled to all the rights and privileges which would belong to an emigrant from other foreign people. In other words, if you wanted civil rights, like voting or access to the courts, you had best try to assimilate, and fast, convert to Christianity, speak English. Farina King, a historian at Northeastern State University and a citizen of the Navajo Nation, says the country eventually turned toward a kind of paternalism toward Native peoples only after centuries of war. That's where these boarding schools came from. And it was seen as benevolent. We can't just have this full-scale genocide. We can't just kill off Native Americans in these violent conflicts. What are we going to do with them? When Zitkala Shah was in boarding school, she was punished for speaking anything other than English. She was tied to a chair, and her hair was cut. Some of the children at this school died from neglect. Kill the Indian and save the man. Zitkala Shah learned to play the violin at school and learned the art of public speaking. So when that rich lady offered to pay for her to go to college, she took it. But college was incredibly lonely. At Earlham College, she found herself without a single friend. Often I wept in secret, wishing I had gone west to be nourished by my mother's love, instead of remaining among a cold race whose hearts were frozen hard with prejudice. Her writings are read by an actor. An oratory competition at the school caught her eye, so she entered. Her speech was once again about equal rights. This time, she argued that Native peoples were Americans, with equal claim to the same land. We come from mountain fastness, from cheerless plains, from far-off, low-wooded streams, seeking to unite with yours our claim to a common country that we may stand side by side with you in ascribing honor to our nation's flag, America, 
I love thee. She brought down the house, took first place. She went to a bigger competition, representing her college in front of thousands of people. Some people in the crowd unfurled a banner when she got up to speak. It had a crude image of an Indian girl and the word squaw. The Indian loved his native land. Is patriotism a virtue found only in Saxon hearts? The flag had lowered back into the crowd by the time her name was announced. She had won second place. Her schooling had kindled a fire within Zitkala Shah for the rights of Native peoples. But she took a job as a teacher in one of these Indian boarding schools, where Native languages and beliefs were being stomped out. The school, for all its faults, brought her into close contact with American Indians from all over the country. You know, you have these close relationships develop because of these schools that were supposed to be used as a part of colonizing. They have these unexpected impacts of actually enabling indigenous activism. Zitkala Shah felt pulled west to be with her mother and her tribe on the Great Plains, even though she didn't really fit in there anymore. She also felt pulled east to play the violin in the Great Halls of Boston. She also didn't really fit there either. She was stuck. She did leave the school, would again return home to the Yankton Sioux Reservation, connect with family. She did connect with her husband, Raymond Bonin, who worked with the Uinta and Yore Reservation Utes, and that's where she has her time in Utah. In Utah, living on Ute lands, she had an idea a way that she could bridge the enormous gap between white and Native Americans makes the one of the first American Indian operas, the Sundance Opera, based on Dakota and Ute ceremony. The Sundance was a religious ritual, and Indians were forbidden from performing it by the government. A musician at Brigham Young University named William Hansen worked on the opera with Zitkala Shah. They performed the opera in Utah with local Ute tribal members. They performed their own sacred traditions in a theater in a way that wouldn't scare people. That time, operas, they were a big deal. It was a part of reaching an influential class. These were people who were reading in the news and saying things like the only good Indian is a dead Indian. That was still being perpetuated. The Sundance Opera showed that Native cultures and peoples weren't something to be destroyed, weren't some problem to fix. They were something to be celebrated and even inspired by. In Utah, Zitkala Shah also voted. Remember, women could vote in Utah, and Zitkala Shah's people, the Yankton Sioux, had voting rights in the U.S. But her neighbors and friends on the Ute Reservation could not. Everywhere Zitkala Shah went among Native peoples, she saw the same thing. Their land was being stolen from under their feet. She wrote stories about American Indians being raped, robbed, and murdered for their lands. Her writing was beautiful. The Atlantic Monthly and Harper's Magazine published her stories. She wanted to change a whole country's views of Native peoples. They call a shot was at the front of that, saying, we are human. 
we play the violin like you. We sing like you. We have a way of spiritually connecting like you. She wanted citizenship for all American Indians. No more being treated like the citizens of a foreign nation. When American women were enfranchised in 1920, she had an opening. Now the time is at hand when the American Indian shall have his day in court through the help of the women of America. The stain upon America's fair name is to be removed, and the remnant of the Indian nation, suffering from malnutrition, is to number among the guests at your dinner tables. We would open the door of American opportunity to the red man. We seek his enfranchisement. Finally, in 1924, Congress wrote and passed a law called the Indian Citizenship Act. A strong catalyst was the 12,000 Indians who had served in World War I without the benefit of citizenship. But one of the great privileges of citizenship, the right to vote, was still regulated by the states. It was often denied to Native Americans on reservations in Utah and many other states. And not all Native Americans were excited about the Indian Citizenship Act in 1924. Their concerns persist to this day. I'm Kimball Bighorse, citizen of the Cuga Nation of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, also known as the Six Nations or Iroquois Confederacy. Back in 1924, the Haudenosaunee were concerned that American citizenship would erode the sovereignty of tribal nations. The government might be free to ignore the treaties between the tribes and the United States. We have our own forms of governance. The American system was imposed upon us. To me, it was a move to subjugate tribal people for the most part. Zitkala Shah hoped the tribes could be more powerful if they banded together, and more powerful if they voted. She started the National Council of American Indians. Indians were already working with the U.S. government on behalf of their individual tribes. She brought them into her council. She crisscrossed the United States to get American Indians connected. This kind of work was painstaking, interviewing people, collecting signatures for petitions, asking Congress to help. She did it until she died. At another Indian school in the 1920s, a Shoshone girl from Utah named Mae Timbimbu was told to stand on a chair and answer her teacher's questions. And I was standing up on the chair, but I would not talk. And uh, he went over there and yanked me off the chair. And he says to me, you, are, you will never amount to anything. He says, you're going to be just as filthy and dirty as the rest of the Indians. May Timbimbu was recorded in 2006, in her late 80s, still remembering the sting of a teacher telling her that she was a dirty Indian. May grew up in Washakie, Utah, and was chosen by her grandfather to be the keeper of the tribe's stories. The story he most wanted May to know happened one winter morning in 1863, when he was about 10 years old. His entire community along the Bear River came under a surprise attack by federal troops. He ran into his grandmother, and Grandma says, why don't we drop down on the ground and play dead? 
the troops were mowing people down all around them. Some people tried to hide from them in the frozen Bear River. Yeager Timbimbu, just a boy, and his grandmother lay on the ground and didn't move, hoping that the troops would pass by them in the snow. Uh, one of the soldiers came along, walked over to Grandpa, aimed at him, and then something beyond description happened. The soldier took, put his gun down and walked off and left Grandpa. Yeager Timbimbu said he survived so that he could tell the story of what happened that day. May Timbimbu heard people around her talk about the Battle of Bear River, saw it on plaques and history books. But she knew it wasn't a battle. Hundreds of Shoshone men, women, and children were slaughtered that day, aided by the settlers in Utah. Grandpa says, I think you have been picked to fill this mission that telling the story of the massacre of Bear River. She was an activist. She was in Washington, D.C. more than 10 times to testify uh, before Congress. The Bear River Massacre site used to be called the Battle of Bear River by the National Park Service. And she worked tirelessly to make sure that that was changed. This is May's grandson. My name is Darren Perry. I serve as the chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation. Darren is carrying on May Timbimbu Perry's work as a keeper of stories. Now he tells stories about her. She helped uh, develop the Indians Reparation Act, a federal act to return Native American artifacts and especially human remains when they're found uh, at digging sites or by municipalities or private citizens. She was just really instrumental in changing how the government interacts with Native Americans today. It took a long time to get the government of Utah to give people living on reservations the vote. 1957. Utah, in fact, was the last state. Darren said he gets strength from his grandmother's legacy of political activism for Native people's civil rights. Our women have always had rights. I mean, always. They did everything. The decisions were made by our women. And gratefully and thankfully so. I said two women in today's episode, but let's meet one more. My name is Daylene Redhorse. I am from the Navajo Reservation, and I'm also enrolled with the Navajo Tribe. The Navajo Reservation today stretches across Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. The roads are mostly unnamed. 50,000 homes and businesses have no address. A lot of people use directions to their houses, like, let's say, so many miles from a certain landmark. And that's very complicating, especially when you have to register that as a data into the computers. Without an address, it's easy for voter registrations to have mistakes. So when I went over to see mine, <laughs> surprisingly, I was pinned to reside near a sewer pond and bluff. That would put me in the wrong, a different district than where I actually live. So I'm not sure of what was happening to my votes all these years. She's working on a solution to this problem with the help of Google. We're giving all residents on the reservation on the Utah side physical addresses using plus codes. So what's a plus code? 
Plus codes is a six-digit number or code that's shortened from the coordinates we used from the satellites, the longitude and latitude. This isn't just a nice thing to do. The code lets emergency medical services find the sick or distressed when they call, and it lets people register to vote. It brings Navajo voices to the San Juan County government, to the Utah state government, and to the federal government in Washington, D.C. Navajos were underrepresented, so I decided to go in and let Navajos know, you know, we're being walked on. We're being pushed aside. This is our state as well. This is our reservation. This is our county. We make a majority of the county. So I said, let's get in, get you registered. Let's let county know that we live in Utah, not Arizona. This kind of work requires a ton of driving. Sometimes she'll drive for miles and miles and finally come to a cluster of four houses. Daylene takes a deep breath and knocks on the doors of strangers. When you go to introduce yourself, you include your clan, and then that way people will know how you're related or that they'll figure out, okay, they're family, and then they have that trust or that confidence in you. It's been more than 150 years that Utah women have been doing this kind of work, house by house, block by block, trying to make sure that the people in Utah count. Daylene Redhorse is just one more in a long line of Utah women trying to expand the electorate, trying to make America a democracy. Zion Suffragists is written by me, Diana Douglas, and is edited by Tracy Keck and Laurel Christensen Day. Our producer is Andrea Smarden. Executive producer is Burke Olson. Eva Bighorse and Jordi Byrne were our voice actors today. Eva Bighorse and Farina King have both contributed to Indigenous Latter-day Saint Perspectives on Columbus, coming soon in the journal Dialogue. Huge thanks to historians Mike Taylor and Jane Hafen, and to Marianne Monson, author of Her Quiet Revolution, and the delightful book Frontier Grit, The Unlikely True Stories of Daring Pioneer Women. Darren Perry is the author of The Bear River Massacre, a Shoshone history. The clips of Zitkala Shah and William Hansen's Sundance Opera come from a documentary by Palisander Verlag called The Sundance Opera. It's sung by Stephanie Hauptfleisch and Frank Blumel with Mark Kirsten on the piano. Support for this podcast comes in part from Deseret Book, publisher of three wonderful new books about Utah women who fought for voting rights. They are Thinking Women, A Timeline of Suffrage in Utah, Her Quiet Revolution about Martha Hughes Cannon, and just released the book Pioneering the Vote, The Untold Story of Suffragists in Utah and the West. You can find these books at Deseret Bookstores, at DeseretBook.com, and the Deseret Bookshelf app. I'm Diana Douglas. Thanks for joining me.